Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, coming to you like druids to Stonehenge at the solstice. My name is Mark West, and the focus of today's show is evolution and technological art. I spoke to Professor Rob Brooks from the University of New South Wales about sexual selection. And I started by asking Rob, what's it all about and what's it got to do with sex and evolution? Well, the important thing uh, about evolution is that um, really, it's all about reproduction. So uh, it doesn't matter how long you live. If you don't produce babies, then you leave no descendants. Okay. Now, it's not like we're looking forward to, to some kind of future or anything like that. It's also not like uh, anything's done with any kind of intention. But what happens is that uh, the individuals who make the most babies, who leave the most descendants, um, and the most grandchildren and the most grand-grandchildren, those are the individuals who are the big evolutionary winners. And by that I mean really those are the individuals who contribute most to what the population looks like um, in the future. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you look at us today, um, today we are all the descendants of a long line of reproductively successful ancestors. Every single one of us has had a mum and a dad and uh, four grandparents and um, what's it, 16 great-grandparents, yeah. all of whom were successful, the most successful in their generation, at finding a mate, um, mating with them, raising the offspring through to maturity. There were, there were people living at those times that were not as successful at doing so. They either never found a mate or they um, were unable to... Uh, get pregnant or to fertilize that mate, etc., etc. So what we are today is really the product of hundreds of thousands of generations of successful reproduction. And so it follows from that that the traits that lead to sexual reproduction are some of the traits under the strongest natural selection. Um, That form of natural selection we call sexual selection. And so this, it's all based around, uh, I guess, natural selection works by if you can survive out in the out in the jungle say and, and and you don't get eaten you survive to reproduce but sexual selection works a little bit differently you're desirable to your to your mate is that correct it can be so sexual selection is a kind of natural selection so natural okay. selection can can uh, work because it's uh, the traits keep you alive for a long time or um, because those traits give you lots of uh, resources to put into your offspring like energy um, but the one form of natural selection, the special form called sexual selection, really is about the traits that make you attractive to members of the opposite sex and the traits that um, make you get out and caught and, and get involved with members of the opposite sex. It doesn't, you know, it's no good being attractive if you're not very outgoing and able to go out and, and meet them. Right. Uh, but also the traits that make you a good competitor against members of the same sex. So a lot of the... Um, the nastier things about men and the nasty things that men do to each other can be uh, sort of attributed to a long history of sexual selection on male competitiveness. Okay. 
because and it's the best, you know, the, the men who, who are most competitive, who are able to get resources, who are able to get access to females, those are the men who've left uh, the most descendants. And, and this, that, that's intra-sexual uh, selection, is it, compared to inter, which is the sort of attracting females? So sometimes we like to distinguish those two forms of sexual selection, yes. And what, what are some examples in nature of, uh, of, of let's say, intra-sexual selection, so males fighting each other? Uh, one of the best examples that you can come across is the, the horns of antelope. So a lot of antelope species, the females have no horns at all, or they have very, very small horns. So it's probably not, we, we already realise that um, the fact that it's only males who have these horns, it's probably not something to defend against predators. And if you go out into the, the savannas of Africa in about August or so, you'll see animals like impala and springbok and Thompson's gazelle, the males will be fighting with one another. They have what's called the rut, in which is, you know, it's the one time of year when all the matings take place. And males have this relentless... Um, attritional war with all the other males around them in which they're continually trying to see these males off in head-to-head conflict, literally head-to-head. Um, and, and you'll hear the clashing of horns from the first light in the morning until the sun goes down in the evening um, because males are trying to get the, be the dominant male in an area and therefore able to mate with the females in the herd that exists in that area. Males that are able to do that are, um, leave the best descendants, and so um, males with slightly bigger horns tend to have an advantage over males with slightly smaller horns, which is why those horns get exaggerated. Right up to the point where they, um, that they can sort of no longer become exaggerated because they uh, make the animal more likely to get um, sort of trapped, I guess, in the undergrowth or unable to carry their head up high. You can, yeah, I, I can imagine it, it, it. You get to this this point where it becomes it's, it's not an advantage to have, have big antlers. You know, you can think of examples where people might find. I heard this example once: uh, black spots on the skin uh, attractive, but those black spots are melanomas, so mm. they'll kill you. Uh, there must be a really interesting uh, fight between sexual selection and um, just being able to survive. There can be. There can be a very profound effect on it. Uh, so in the crickets that we use, males call um, for many, many hours a night. Now, they don't call every night because they don't have enough energy to call every night. But males that have found good food or that have good genes that have then allowed them to accumulate good fat resources will call a hell of a lot more than males that are not so well off. Um, and as a consequence, more females will be able to find them. And those males tend to... Um, have much more offspring than the males who, who don't call as much. So there's very strong sexual selection on males to call a lot, but uh, that comes at a cost. First of all, there's a parasitoid fly that locates males on the basis of their calling and comes and lays their eggs on the male. And what happens there is that the, um, the, the larvae hatch and they go into the cricket's body and they eat the cricket out from the inside, leaving the wing muscles till last. So he keeps on calling away. Um, gets parasitized by more and more um, different fly individuals. And at the end, you've got all these flies that are now ready to um, hatch and to mate, um, all sitting there in, in the, the shell of a male who's continuing to call. Um, and so there's, a, there's that cost. Predators can also find the males on the basis of their call. And just the energetic costs of calling cause the best males to burn very brightly, but they die young. That's a, a phenomenal example. I guess then lots of other crickets come to the, or lots of female crickets come to the male, and the the parasites then attack 
attack her, do they? Well, they're, they're actually so good at locating the male on the base of his call that they fly in really close to him and they um, sort of squirt their eggs at the male and some of them stick to the male. So they don't even land on him. Wow. Um, they just sort of hit him with these adhesive eggs. So the female has to be desperately unlucky to get hit by a parasitoid um, egg because she has to be sort of right there with the male at the moment he's calling. What male does is actually he calls until the female arrives and then he changes his call to a much lower, much quieter call. It's a private courtship call saying to her, you, you know, I'm the one that you've come to uh, and I'm actually really good and here's some other information about how good I am as a mate. And, um, and if she likes that, she'll mate with him. So, you know, a female has to be really desperately unlucky to get hit by a parasitoid's eggs. So why do we find things attractive? It seems kind of random that people would like or that, that, that animals would like certain things as opposed to other things. Why, why are they attractive in the first place? There's a very strong sort of feeling um, that what is attractive can be very random. And that's a sort of a pervasive feeling in society. And it comes from a... I'm not too sure where it comes from, but it comes from some fairly strong biases that we have. It, it's a, a tremendously important question. Why bother choosing? Why not simply mate with the first male that's there and get the whole messy difficult, dangerous business over with. Um, and it seems like that there's, there can be a real difference between some males and other males in how, um, in how they, good they are as potential mates. So a peacock with a big, bright, beautiful train is probably carrying all sorts of wonderful genes, including genes to fight off the parasites that are present in the environment, genes that enable the male to do well in terms of the nutrition that's available. You know, he can, he's good at finding food, good at metabolizing food, um, good at avoiding predators. So there can be genetic benefits there. Um, often also females will mate with males because they have very direct benefits. So there are a lot of birds where males put in a tremendous amount of work being caring dads, and females will often assess the quality of the male on the basis of uh, a spot of colour here or there or a tuft or a, um, the length of a tail. So the benefits can also be very direct. And I, and I guess as the generations go by, this, there's a, a bit of a feedback loop because you'll have your kids will have your genes so they will lo they'll have the same preferences and then maybe that's... Is that how the, the peacock's tail grew so big? That's certainly what we believe is that... Um, the, as females mate with the males with the most attractive tails, so the genes for the preference and the genes for the good tail are present in the offspring. Um, and so you see this association building up between the, the two sets of genes, genes for the preference and genes for the signaling trait, and that can cause something called a Fisherian runaway, which basically just means a, an accelerating preference and trait arms race. I, I found a, a really interesting uh, hypothesis. I think it was called the, the sexy sun hypothesis. Do you know uh, much about this one? It's pretty much the same thing as the Fisherian hypothesis, and that is okay. saying the main benefit of mating with attractive males is that your sons will be attractive. Now, the unfortunate thing about that hypothesis is that it, um, it sort of atomizes um, individuals or, or species into um, component parts. You know, it's... Um, if if you have if you mate if if you're a peahen and you were to mate with an attractive peacock, um, not only would the sons be attractive, but they would also have all sorts of other uh, consequences because having a long tail is costly. 
Um, and so, you know, it's impossible to completely separate out having this beautiful, bright, colorful tail and the benefits of that against the, all of the decisions in terms of the resources to allocate to growing to that. Um, so the, the benefits of mate choice are usually more holistic than that. The, the most important thing is that um, you, by mating with those males, you end up having uh, the best possible offspring, whether it be via uh, the, the, the benefit be five sons or daughters or both, or purely through the attractiveness of sons. Um, if there's a big accounting exercise, I guess that needs to take place that says that there is a net benefit overall. Yeah, and I guess that's that's I guess how evolution works. Take... Absolutely. That was Rob Brooks chatting to me, Mark West, about sexual selection. Part two of this interview will be aired on Diffusion in future weeks. It's the sound of science. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com and www.diffusionradio.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now here's Ian Wolfe to explain how technological art is being used to teach science and technology to the local community. Hey you! I spent the last six Fridays with international artist Ian Burns, who ran an interactive sculpture workshop. The sounds you just heard were heard in Ashfield Shopping Mall for the exhibition of the culmination of the six weeks workshop. The aim of the workshop was to create each an interactive sculpture that was displayed at the exhibition at the local Ashfield Shopping Mall. Ian Burns is an Australian-born artist based in New York. He was the most recent artist-in-residence at Ferning Villa in Ashfield, an inner-west suburb of Sydney. Ashfield Council arranged for Ian to fly from his base in New York to be Ashfield's artist-in-residence and funded the weekly workshops. Ian taught two groups, basic electricity, analogue electronics, breadboard, designing, digital chip programming and sculpture construction from found objects using woodworking tools and hot glue guns. My own interactive sculpture is a painting whose eyes really do follow you around the room because it's fitted with light sensors, a Meccano eye movement driven by a servo motor and controlled by a programmable chip running a program written in BASIC. With fellow artist Robin, we also exhibited a large purple pyramid that wolf whistled at passers-by and yelled, Hey you! And then, welcome to our art show. Loudly enough to get the attention of people passing by. If you listen closely against the background noise of the mall, you can hear the wolf whistles and the hey yous. So I'm talking to Barty Patel. My sculpture was uh, from my interest in quilting, and I did uh, three big flowers, and I put LEDs and lots of wiring, and then uh, I put a sensors on each flower, and it is light in the room and somebody casts a shadow on it one of the flowers would light up and then uh, as they move along the artwork the second flower would light up in on the outer petals and then the third one had uh, birds that tweet my background is uh, fashion designing i thoroughly enjoyed it i learned lots of new things how to solder and all the technology that goes with the LEDs and the sensors and the pedometers. What was the best thing about the workshop? 
the atmosphere, the company and all the exciting ideas that everybody had. Liz O'Reilly. So Liz, how long was the workshop here? It was supposed to be for eight weeks, but we became so engaged and so focused that we didn't uh, notice the time slipping by and it actually turned out to be 11 weeks. Uh, but primarily a painter, but I've always constructed things out of material that I've collected and uh, that I find on the street. So what have you learned to do in the workshop? Oh, to program a computer, basic electricity circuitry and uh, how to use a drill properly and also so construction skills as well and I think how to pare back things to absolutely none. Computing? Absolutely nothing. And you've picked it all up and to describe your work, which of course we will have pictures on the website. Right, okay. My work is a foosball machine that, uh, table that I found on the side of the street, not far from uh, our workshop area. And uh, I have put all the players evenly spaced onto one rod and I have put a bigger ball in the middle so they cannot score a goal and they are being uh, driven when you walk past the table a sensor goes off it senses your shadow and the machine starts playing by itself it also activates two computer fans mounted on the side of the table which are then amplified by a microphone and going to a speaker which is the roar of the crowd. So, so you can hear the fans? So we can hear the fans exactly, yes. My name's Neil McCann. So Neil, you've been part of this interactive sculpture workshop for how long? Uh, for, for eight weeks it feels like it, it was a lot longer when I was doing the soldering. I felt like uh, I was in one of those uh, those terrible factories in uh, Southeast Asia, but no, it was good. It was well worth it. I'd, I think I soldered once when I was around about 10, uh, but since that time, um, no, not really so tight. It was a demystifying experience there. And so, are you an artist? Are you generally? Uh, what do you do? Um, I, don't, I don't like that term. It's, quite, uh, it's a loaded term, yeah. It's pretty, uh, not to say I don't like it, but I like making stuff. You know, and since, you know, You're a maker. Yeah, make, yeah, it's just putting things together and um, making them do things. Yeah, if you want to call it art. So, so you do enough. that, so you do yeah. put things together and make them yeah. do things. Yeah, So this is yeah. not your first time? No, no. But uh, yeah, I think, I think everyone's you know, got that sort of ability to, uh, uh, sort of inventiveness to. And I'd seen some of uh, Inverter's work down at the MCA. I missed that. Hey, it's coming to Asheville. Okay. And so you've got, your work here today at Ashfield Mall? Yep. Well, to describe it for the radio, it would be three alien balloon heads with uh, tentacle-like eyes uh, coming out of each one. They're pink, yellow, and blue and pink, respectively, with a green brain mothership connecting them all. And uh, they've basically got vibrating bases, so when you touch a light sensor in its head, they uh, vibrate and move about in a weird way, making a weird sound. And the texture you've got on it, what's that weird? Uh, that's expand the foam, um, uh, which is sort of dried and then I sort of moulded it a little bit into shape to make it look a bit weird and then I painted it. Yeah. Um, 
And my first experiment failed, I've just got to say. Anybody wanting to put expander foam on a balloon needs to put a layer of paper and watch that dry first. Because if you put expand foam straight onto a balloon, it will explode, covering the entire of your inside of your kitchen, which I learnt. So That's an important tip. It's a very important tip to the cost of uh, what I was wearing at the time. So that was like jeans and a nice shirt. I thought I could get away with it. Clearly I couldn't. I don't know. Still stuff on the ceiling. And another tip is wait till it dries before you peel it off. Because if you smear it when it's still wet, it's a nightmare. My name is Julie Ashcroft. I'm a visual artist. Um, my main practice uh, is sculpture and uh, painting and drawing. I was curious because uh, I uh, do sculpture, but I've always wanted to find out more about interactive sculpture that uh, Ian Burns is doing. Well, my sculpture is rather macabre. My sculpture started off with found objects. And yes. I had in the studio uh, a doll's head that my friend had given me, and it was always, I, I always have loved it, and I thought one day I might use it. And because I'm a figurative sculptor, I really like heads. And so I had to have a head. And I was interested in time and heartbeat. And that we live in this fast-paced world. And the heartbeat sort of signifies that. So with this particular sculpture, the heartbeat is created with a drum beat. And that gets faster the motion of the lungs uh, or the heart moving thanks to finding uh, a Santa whose arms extend out that acted as lungs or heart and so the whole piece in various sequences moves and the final thing is that when the heartbeat uh, gets faster it rotates so I, I'm really quite pleased it's quite sort of grotesque and Ian Burns has said it's like Chucky I don't know Chucky the doll that kills people but <laughs> it's got a life of its own and the, the course has made me uh, reconsider other possibilities with sculpture. This, this won't be the end of this sculpture, it's only the beginning. So I'm talking to Ian Burns who's run the interactive sculpture workshop for the last how many weeks? Well it was allegedly eight but I think it grew to about eleven. So do you want to tell us a bit about what you do? Well, I'm an artist, a sculptor. I make works that deal with technology at some level. And I'm quite interested in the idea of art using technology with some level of critical thinking. But it's hard with technology because it's very seductive, you know, video is very easy, and then other technologies too geeky and not so interesting and sort of uh, quite ambiguous and we don't really understand how it works and that's a different all black box. So I'm interested in trying to create works or experiences that maybe expose how it works a little bit without being too geeky. And a special thank you to Ian Burns for being so patient and clever with us during the workshops. And an extra thank you to all the workshop participants who had time to be interviewed and apologies to those who I didn't put the microphone in front of. Google Dorkbot in your local area for your own technological art group. If you get an opportunity to do a technological art workshop where you are, grab it. Hey you! 
category which you may or may not belong. Representativeness, bias, don't stereotype this song. I'm biased because of the small detail that throws off the big picture of the thing. Anchoring, bias, see the forest for the trees. I'm biased toward the first example that comes to mind. Availability, bias, to the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, bias, don't let bias in your mind. Bias, don't try this, it'll influence your thinking and memories. Don't mess with these, but you're guilty of distorted thinking. Cognitive bias, your mind becomes blinded. Decisions and problems, you've been forced to solve them wrongly. I'm biased because I'll only listen to what I agree with. Confirmation bias, you never mind if you are this. I'm biased because I take credit for success, but no blame for failure. Self-serving bias, my success and your failure. I'm biased when I remember things the way I would have expected them to be. Expectancy bias, false memories are shaped by these. I'm biased because I think my opinion now was my opinion then. Self-consistency bias, but you felt different way back when. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send us an email at diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to today's program were Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. I'm biased when I remember things the way I would have expected them to be. Expectancy, bias, false memories are shaped by these. I'm biased because I think my opinion now was my opinion then. Self-consistency bias, but you felt different way back when. Oh, bias, don't let bias in your mind. Bias, don't try this, it'll influence your thinking and memories. Don't mess with these, you're guilty of distorted thinking. Cognitive bias, man becomes blinded. Decisions and problems